You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. A Psalm of David. Lord, I seek refuge in you. Let me never be disgraced, save me, by your righteousness. Listen closely to me. Rescue me quickly. Be a rock of refuge for me, a mountain fortress to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. You lead and guide me for your name's sake. You will free me from the net that is secretly set for me. For you are my refuge. Into your hand I entrust my spirit. You have redeemed me, Lord God of truth. Hate those who are devoted to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. I will rejoice and be glad in your faithful love, because you have seen my affliction. You know the troubles of my soul, and you have not handed me over to the enemy. You have set my feet in a spacious place. Be gracious to me, Lord, because I am in distress. My eyes are worn out from frustration. My whole being as well indeed. My life is consumed with grief and my years with groaning. My strength has failed because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. I am ridiculed by all my adversaries and even by my neighbours. I am dreaded by my acquaintances, those who see me in my street run from me. I am forgotten, gone from memory like a dead person, like a broken pottery. I have heard the gossip of many. Terror is on every side when they conspired against me. They plotted to take my life. But I trust in you, Lord, I say. You are my God. The course of my life is in your power. Rescue me from the power of of my enemies and from my persecutors. Make your face shine on your servant. Save me by your faithful love. Lord, do not let me disgrace when I call on you. Let the wicked be disgraced. Let them be quiet in soul. Let lying lips that arrogantly speak against righteous in proud contempt be silenced. How great is your goodness that you have stored up for those who fear you and accomplished in silence of everyone, for those who take refuge in you. You hide them in protection of your presence. You console them in shelter from human schemes from cold tongues. Blessed be the Lord, for he has wondrously shown his faithful love to me in the city under siege. In my alarm I said, I am cut off from your sight, but you heard the sound of my pleading when I cried to you for help. Lord, love the Lord, all his faithful ones. The Lord protects loyal but fully repays the arrogant. 
Be strong and let your heart be courageous. All you who put your hope in the Lord. The word of the Lord. Good. All right. We are going to take a look at that psalm that you just heard read. We won't cover every verse, so relax. Um, but we will, there is a bit to cover, so I want to I jump into it. But first I want to tell you just why I think it's really important for us to learn from the psalms when it comes to lament. Um, we as a culture, broadly speaking, some of you come from different cultures where it is different, but in, in this local culture we aren't very well practiced in lament. We don't, probably a lot of us know even what it would look like to lament something. We know that some things are lamentable, um, but we don't know how to express lament. And that's a problem because uh, we are designed as creatures by God to give expression to the whole spectrum of human emotion and to express it uh, in prayer to him, but also just uh, as a kind of means to emotional maturity and health. And so the uh, people of Israel knew that, and that's why most of the psalms in your book of psalms are psalms of lament. Uh, there's a whole book called Lamentations, which is just one big book of lament in the Old Testament. We are not so good at it. And so I find, and you might find this in your own experience, where I have failed to fully and, and um, in a healthy way express disappointment, grief, anger, um, th th that emotion comes out, it still comes out, but it doesn't come out in a healthy way. It doesn't come out in a prayerful way. It comes out in normally kind of immature ways. And, um, and so when we don't have words to express our feelings, we tend to resort to other means, less helpful means. I learned this the hard way growing up because I grew up in a house where uh, I had two brothers, one older, one younger, but I was always the smallest. Uh, I, I was about four foot nothing until I was like 16, all right, and, 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 I, and I weighed about the same as a small Bible. That was about my, my weight, and, uh, and whereas my brothers were, and particularly my younger brother, was just bigger, tougher, stronger, um, but he, he didn't have the gift of the gab, so this is what I had on him. I had ways, ways of making him feel terrible about himself just by using words. It, it's, the, it's what I developed in place of muscles. I, I, I developed my tongue, all right? And this has caused me more grief than anything else in my entire life when it goes bad. Um, but what I found, and, and this was possible because my dad had four, like he was a single dad with four kids under 10, one of which was an adopted infant. He just couldn't, he couldn't always be there to stop bad things from happening to us, all right? And, and I think that's called good parenting, really. But he didn't have a choice. There was no heli he had no helicopter. Um, he was like flying at 100,000 feet and just hoping everything was okay most of the time. I think he's probably watching right now. Love you, Dad. You did a great job. But we had like 15 acres to, to, to get into trouble in, and so we would do that. I, and, and inevitably, three boys, th you know, 15 acres, bad stuff happens. And... Um, and often it happened to rabbits or kangaroos or neighbors' kids, but sometimes it happened to us, and that's when, when I would bring out my secret weapon, 
my, my tongue. James says the tongue is like, it's like a spark that sets the world on fire, sets hell on fire. Um, and, and so the way it would play out was normally that uh, I would provoke my younger brother with my words and then he would punch me in the face. And uh, I don't know, I, I just have always assumed that everyone has been punched in the face at least a dozen times. It turns out when I've asked you this before, a lot of people haven't, it really, really hurts. Like if you get a really good punch in the face, there's not much you can do except just go, Dah! like it's really, it's painful, all right? And so what's the point? Oh, what my brother, and I can say this because he's not here to defend himself, but what he was expressing there, what he was living out was this failure to express pain, indignation, frustration, anger in a healthy way. And that is really what we do. I mean, it's easy to look down on the, on the kid who, gets, who, who uses his fists instead of his, his words, but we do that a whole lot, I think, because we don't know how to express frustration. Listen, I, I think we saw this in, throughout that whole pandemic thing. I think we experienced as like in a col- the collective consciousness this, this anger, this fear, this frustration, and most of us didn't know what to do with it. And just to be honest, right, like I've, I've got a lot of issues with our own government in terms of what I feel like was a, an overreach in many, in, in many spheres, where they, where, where they kind of overstepped the mark in terms of their sphere of authority during that pandemic. Um, but I think a lot of the pushback against the government was just a, a given by a whole lot of people who didn't have their big boy words yet and were frustrated and angry and, and afraid and didn't know how to express it. Can we just do, I mean, do you recognize that at all? Is that, was that just me? I found that. I found, very, I found myself being very frustrated and frightened and angry and I didn't have, I didn't have a language to express it very well. I didn't have the words and when we don't have the words, we pick up our fists or whatever. Might be a bottle, might be a needle, but it comes out in, in unhealthy ways. So David here, or the, the, the collection of psalmists, artists, who put together these laments for us, have a lot to teach us about how we can process anger, grief, frustration, pain in healthy ways. And I think that's what you're going to see this morning. I've got five questions for you. David here is, is, has written a poem, written a song, because he is overcome or worn down by trouble. He's not speaking of any one particular experience in his life, I don't think, one event, like when his son tried to take his kingdom from him or something like that. He's speaking about just across the breadth of his life, here's a bunch of trouble I've faced and it's worn me down. I'm grieving because life has been hard. And so he writes this poem, he writes this song to express his grief and his trust that God is still good. I don't know if it's just me, but I'm getting a whole bunch of weird noises coming off this microphone, so I'm just going to tighten this up a little bit and then hope that does something. I don't know if it does. Um, 
Five questions I've got. If you are here this morning or if at any time in your life you have been worn down by trouble, here are five questions I think we should ask. And if you have never been worn down by trouble, God bless you. But you will be, so you might want to tuck these away. All right? Five things. First of all, first question I've got is, where do you go? Where do you go when you're worn down by trouble? Where do you go? David says this. This is where he goes. Verse 1 to 4. I will exalt you, Lord, because you have lifted me up. Uh, sorry, that's, verse, that's Psalm 30. Uh, hang on. Uh, 31. Lord, I seek refuge in you. That's the point. Where do you go? David says, Lord, I seek refuge in you. Let me never be disgraced. Save me by your righteousness. Listen closely to me. Rescue me quickly. Be a rock of refuge for me, a mountain fortress to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. You lead and guide me for your name's sake. You will free me from the net that is secretly set for me. Why? For you are my refuge. Refuge. Where does David go when he feels worn down by trouble? Well, the truth is, we know from his life, he goes to some pretty bad places, some pretty dark places. He goes to adultery, for example. But I think you read in this psalm the desire of his heart. And on his better days, I'm sure he lives this out. He goes to God because God is his refuge. God is his fortress. That's what he's got in mind, right? He's an ancient king. He's familiar with fortresses. If you are a nation, especially Israel, not especially big, not especially powerful, and you're surrounded by nations like Babylon and Syria and others, you need to have some fortresses. You need safe places so that when the army comes against you, you can get all of your people into that fast into that stronghold where you can be safe. And David says, God is like a fortress for him. It's when, when trouble comes, when enemies arrive, he can run to a safe place. God is his fortress. And that might sound a little bit archaic to us, like we're fortress, maybe visited one in Scotland one time, or you know, some, one of these older countries. We live in a young country. We don't have a whole lot of castles lying around the place. We don't really have need of running to fortresses because even if an enemy did come against us, running to a fortress, they can just, you know, blow it up. So it's not it's like it's an, it's an ancient reference, but I think we get it. I think we get the metaphor. I was trying to find a, a contemporary example of someone using this language and of all places I found it in Michael Jordan all right the the, the greatest of all time uh, Michael Jordan he's being enrolled in the basketball hall of fame like the greatest honor a basketball could ever have bestowed on them and this is what he said the game of basketball has been everything to me my place of refuge the place I've always gone when I needed comfort and peace Basketball for Michael Jordan is his refuge. It's his safe place. So what is it for you? Where do you run 
When you're, when you're worn down by trouble, where do you run? What's your safe place? What's your refuge? What's your fortress? Another way of thinking about it is, what do you, where do you escape to? Most of us play that game, that escapism game, right? For some of it, it literally is a game. Some people, like computer games, are great examples of escapism that people indulge in. But where do you go? Where do you go when you're feeling overwhelmed, grief-stricken? Michael Jordan goes to basketball. Do you have a refuge that is more powerful and more personal than basketball? Or video games? Or even your spouse? Do you have a refuge that is more powerful and more personal. That's the beautiful thing about God as refuge. He's not just stone, fortress, cold, but strong. He's both powerful and personal. He's huge and tender. So do you have that? Do you have God as the personal and powerful refuge to run to. I love just about one, one of the, the most beautiful things that Jesus says is in Matthew 11. You guys know it. This is an invitation to refuge. Come to me. Who gets to come? Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened. And I will give you rest. Take up my yoke and learn from me because I am lowly and humble. You can translate it gentle in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. That's an invitation to refuge from the only one who can actually give it to you. You can try basketball. You probably won't do it as well as he did. You can try all kinds of things. You can try even like the uh, seemingly holy versions of this, you know, marriage or God help us children. Like you can try and find refuge in them, but none of them can deliver the powerful and personal refuge that God does. Where do you go? Second question, who do you trust? Verse 5 and 7, take a look. He says to God, Into your hand I entrust my spirit. You have redeemed me, Lord, God of truth. I hate those who are devoted to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. I will rejoice and be glad in your faithful love because you have seen my affliction. You know the troubles of my soul. Who do you trust? Now, God willing, it would be a great demonstration of God's grace if he has given you people that you can trust. I just stood up before you before and said, God has given me the gift of Suzanne, someone I can trust. God willing, everyone in this room at least has one person that they can trust. But again, same deal with the refuge. That person is not going to be able 
to be entrusted with the most important spheres, the most important aspects of your life, with your very soul. Those people can never be entrusted with that. You should never trust to a person the things that you can only ever trust to God. If you sub in anyone else's name, let's do this, right? Let's go to verse uh, 5. If you say to someone, into your hand I entrust my spirit, you have redeemed me, Suzanne, God of truth. If, If you do that, you will absolutely destroy your relationship with that person. When it starts out, they'll probably feel flattered because you have made them your God. And that's what all of us want to be in the dark places of our hearts. We want to be gods. So when it starts out, they will probably respond so positively to you. Thank you so much. You must trust me so much. Respect me so much. To make me your God in this way, you feel like something like affection. But here's, here's the thing. Everyone look at me for a second. I promise you that within a very short space of time, that relationship will burn. Because you know the saying, whatever we idolize, we will demonize. It starts out like an idol. You are my God. I trust my soul to you. You have redeemed me. It starts out as idolatry, which looks like worship, which can also look like love or friendship. But it will turn to demonization. We will end up damning that person as a false god when they prove themselves to be a false god. Whatever we idolize, we will demonize. I hate those who are devoted to worthless idols. They're worthless because they can't do what God can only do. Don't have in your mind like little wooden figures that people are bowing down to, right? Our idols are much more likely to be our spouse, our children, our job, whatever we're putting our hope in. That's what we worship. And and, and as soon as we start worshipping it, we have damned the relationship. No, no, he says, I will rejoice and be glad in your faithful love because you have seen my, infl- my affliction. You know the troubles of my soul. You can have a soul mate and they're never going to be able to actually see you like God sees you. You can have someone who's just wonderfully well suited to you and they are never going to know the troubles of your soul. And if you expect them to, you will always be disappointed. It's like the classic thing between married people. One one spouse is desperately hurt and the hurt is compounded by the fact that the other spouse doesn't know exactly how they're feeling and they expect the person to just know by some kind of magic. Well, with God, there's no magic required. He does know. He does see. And in fact, in Jesus, he has experienced the depths of your grief. He's able for all time to sympathize with us in our weakness. 
because he himself has experienced betrayal, even to the point of death. Where do you go? Who do you trust? Hey, just a note on this as well. This is worth saying. Because earlier this week, as I was studying this, I came up against an experience that caused me a lot of grief. That is to say, I knew it was coming. And so I, in that office down there by myself, you might have heard me if you were driving past, because I screamed this as a prayer to God to save me from an inevitability, an experience of pain. And you know what happened? Nothing except that I experienced the pain that I was praying I wouldn't experience. It's not a very preachy thing to say. You're only supposed to get up the front and talk about the times where everything turned out and they lived happily ever after, but they, they didn't. Not this time. It's worth just remembering that God is trustworthy and that I can say to every person here without knowing anything about you that you ought to place your trust in God in all circumstances and that there is no guarantee that you will be rescued from every bad experience. God never makes that promise. In fact, what's the most famous quote of this psalm in all of human history? Verse 5, quoted by Jesus on the cross. As he dies, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Luke says in chapter 23, Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. And saying this, he breathed his last. A cry for help. A cry of trust, a cry of lament, instantly followed by death. This is not some kind of spell to make all of your troubles go away. It's not an incantation. It's an expression both of grief and trust. Ultimately, Jesus, even as he died, trusted God to vindicate him. Do you think there was a moment of doubt in his mind where he's dying for the sins of the world where he thought, maybe I will just be punished forever? Well, what he said in his last moments was, no, I trust you. Trust you, Father. Where do you go? Who do you trust? This is my third one. Ready? What do you indulge? Suffering gives most of us what we perceive to be this card that we can play a card of indulgence. I know that I shouldn't live this way, but since I am paying the penalty, so 
much for the sins of others. Since I am being put through this experience that isn't fair and isn't right and is unjust, then, you know, maybe I can just relax the rules a little bit. What do you indulge? When we're suffering, when we're worn down by trouble, we, our, our, our guard goes down in terms of resisting temptation. Amen? It's just a fact. I mean, that's just a fact if you're just tired. You know, I mean, you, you're not suffering in any way. You're just really tired. You will be more likely to, to take the bait of Satan. All right? You'll be more likely to lower your guard. And when you add in suffering, and especially injustice, then you introduce this sort of temptation to indulge. David says of his experience here in verse 9 to 10, he says, Be gracious to me, Lord, because I am in distress. My eyes are worn out from frustration, my whole being as well. Indeed, my life is consumed with grief. My years with groaning, my strength has failed because of my iniquity, or it could be because of my affliction, and my bones waste away. He's experiencing this, 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 this grief, frustration, anger, pain, physically. You know what this is like? What's that really, so there's a really good book I read a while back called um, The Body Keeps the Score. It's by someone with a Dutch name I can't pronounce, but if you're interested, just Google it. It's just the, this idea that when we experience pain or grief, it's not just something that is abstract. This does, doesn't just happen in your mind. It happens through your body. Your entire being experiences all of your emotions. There is no like separation between thinking and feeling and doing. and it, It's all one. And so over time, if you experience trauma for a period of time, your body will start to, um, your body will start to manifest like pain or sickness or whatever. And that's what I think what David is expressing here. He's expressing that this is not just something that's going on in his heart of hearts. This is something his whole body is being racked with. And I think particularly when we're feeling physical pain as a result of emotional distress, we are primed to self-medicate because we're feeling it, right? We're not just thinking it. This is something I'm feeling. My whole body is being overwhelmed by the... um, consequences of this trauma and so therefore I need to I need some medicine you might reach for the Panadol wouldn't be the worst idea in the world or you might reach for the bottle or you might reach for I don't know any all kinds of things some popular ones are uh, people self-medicate with alcohol people self-medicate with illicit drugs people self-medicate with oh Every kid alive right now is self-medicating with vapes. Uh, people self-medicate with pornography. Most people aren't watching pornography because they really like the look of the people who are having sex with each other. They self-medicate with pornography because they're in pain and it feels comforting. Self-medication. The Bible 
gives to us a much better way because self-medication with any of those illicit substances only brings more grief and pain. It is the tragedy of self-medication. You take something, think it's going to help, and it only... Can you imagine if you had cancer and you were having chemotherapy without knowing that it was making the cancer a hundred times worse? How tragic would that be? And yet that's what we do with our self-medications. This short-term grasping for comfort that only destroys us. The Bible gives us a better way, all right? So, in the midst of your, your grief, in the midst of your pain, in the midst of just, like just normal, everyday suffering, the Bible gives us this prescription Ephesians 5, I, I, re- I really think this is on the money. Paul says, don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless living, but be filled with the Spirit. Did you get his play on words? He meant that to be funny, but meaningful, all right? Don't get filled up with wine. Don't get drunk with wine, because it leads to damnation. It leads to all kinds of problems. But be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making music with your heart to the Lord. The final point in Joe's prayers this morning. Making music. What do you indulge when you feel worn down by trouble? And how can you replace that indulgence with the wine of God's Spirit? The wine that will bring real levity, real joy. The Bible isn't anti-alcohol, but is absolutely opposed to using alcohol to do what God can only do. Where do you go? What do you trust? What do you indulge for? Who do you fear? This is the paradox, right? Because the Bible constantly calls us to fear God and promises us good things when we do. It's a paradox because in our minds, fear is always negative. And yet he says here, verse 19 to 20, he says... How great is your goodness that you have stored up for those who fear you and accomplished in the sight of everyone for those who take refuge in you. You hide them in the protection of your presence. You conceal them in a shelter from human schemes, from quarrelsome tongues. Fear. Who do you fear? Or is it whom do you fear? I never know. Fear is weird because it can lead us, depending on the object of our fear, it can lead us to distress or to rest. It doesn't rhyme, but it nearly does. Okay, So fear, depending on the object of our fear, can lead us to distress or to rest. If we fear man, if we fear circumstances, then it can lead to more distress. You only compound 
your stress when you add fear into the mix. The fear of the Lord is like worship. That's what he means. When you fear the Lord, you worship him. It means he, he is the one that occupies your mind, your thoughts, your, your heart, your affections. Now, when you fear circumstances or men or whatever, then that is the thing that occupies your mind and, and takes control of your affections. You know what this feels like when you can't sleep at night? Might you try and think about something else and it always comes back to that one thing that you fear? That's just like worship. That's what worship is. That's what it should be like with Jesus, right? You're just constantly coming back in your mind to him. I can't even sleep tonight. I'm just so oh, overwhelmed by God's grace in Jesus, right? When, when that becomes something else, anything else, person, circumstance, whatever, then you've started to fear those things and they will consume you. That's why he says, no, 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 blessed are those. Your, your, your goodness is great towards those. You, you've stored up good things for those who fear you. To those who fear you. You can fear God or you can fear stuff. You can't fear both at the same time. I spent most of this past week consumed by fear in the form of worry about a stupid decision I made. It wasn't anything horrible. I'm not like they're not going to sack me for it. But I just, I just, I wasn't careful. I wasn't careful enough in a big decision. All right, and I was just consumed by worry. I, I couldn't sleep at night. It was consuming my thoughts during the day. My productivity was hopeless. I couldn't be present with my family because I was just I was consumed by this thing. That's what fear does. I told my dad this, and he sent me a text. I just want to I want to find it because he said something really. He said something that his dad used to say about worry. Worry is the interest payment on things that may never happen, which is so true. Like we invest so much of ourselves in something that ultimately, I mean, never warrants that kind of allegiance, that kind of worship. Fearing God, on the other hand, well, he's always worthy of that kind of consuming, all-consuming thought. I'm aware in saying this, by the way, that for many of us, um, it's, not just we, it's not like I can say, oh, don't worry anymore, just pray to God. And then you'll be like, oh, man, I never thought of that. Oh, okay, yeah. And just click, and you've, um, you've upgraded your iOS, and now you're... It doesn't work like that. But if you do tend to, like I did this past week fall into worry and patterns of worry that are consuming, fear-based, consuming thoughts about trouble and tension and whatever, then that is something that you have become habituated to. That's just something that you've done. I mean, you didn't start out that way. You have developed that as a habit. And like any other habit, it can be broken. You can replace worry with prayer. You can replace fear of stuff with fear of God. You can. Do you believe it? You really, you actually can. 
But like most bad habits, like if you want to overcome a bad habit, you need to not just say, I'm never going to do it again. You need to replace it with a positive one. That's like one of the keys. Thank you, Joe. Um, all right. Yeah, I, well, I believe this. And, uh, and, and, and this is how the Bible speaks of replacing the habit of worry with the habit of prayer. Philippians 4 makes it really, really clear. You know this one? Don't worry about anything. <laughs> okay? But in everything, through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God and the peace of God which passes, surpasses, transcends all understanding, right? All circumstances will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Don't just stop worrying. Don't just say, I'm not going to fear man anymore. Don't just, like, forget the nonsense you've read in self-help books about stepping into your power or whatever else nonsense they're peddling, right? Forget all of that. Put away fear and go to prayer, petition, with thanksgiving. The result is peace. Peace that surpasses understanding. I just look at the clock and got all worried about the time. So let's go. Let's get to that last one. The, number five. Where is your hope? Where is your hope? Last verse, twenty-four. Be strong. Hear this. Hear this from your brother, King David. Right. This is his. This is his word of benediction. This is his word of blessing for you. Be strong. Let your heart be courageous. All you who put your hope in the Lord. Where is your hope? Do you know that hope is something that you get to choose where you plug it in? Right? Your hope is a thing that you can take and invest. i got a friend who's just obsessed with the stock market. I don't know anything about it. He talks to me and I just like I just have no idea what it is, just another language. But he loves it. He's just trading all the time, trading shares and stocks and loves it. It's like a game to him. He's doing pretty well. Making investments, choosing where he puts his money, trying to get the greatest return. That's like hope. That's what hope is. It's an investment. And you get to choose where you invest it. Many of us invested in, in the kinds of harebrained schemes that never give us any return. Like someone just rang up from Nigeria or, or somewhere and said, oh, you should put your money in, I don't know, looking good? Being happy? Having lots of money? I don't know. Getting good marks in year 12. Living in the right suburb with the right amount of leafy streets. I don't know, like, whatever. All of those are scams. Do you know that? They can be good things that we can enjoy that become scams as soon as we invest our hope in them. 
So just play the market. Enjoy those things without giving them your hope. Then you'll be a Christian. You can stand in front of the mirror and say, thank you, Lord, for making me such a fine specimen. But I'm not going to put my hope in my looks. My hope is in you. Even if I get scolded by acid tomorrow and never look pretty again, I will trust in you. That's investing your hope in a sure thing. Investing your hope in the gospel is a sure thing because it's already happened. The thing has already taken place. Jesus has died and rose again. The war has been won. So invest in a sure thing. Put your hope in the gospel. It won't disappoint you. So much of our experience of trauma that leads us to this place where we need to lament is because we put our hope in a scam. So just call up your broker, Jesus, and tell him to take your investments out of that junk so that you can enjoy that junk for what it is and then put it all into him. This hope won't disappoint you. Romans 5. Let's finish on this. Huh, this hope will not disappoint us. Because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. It's a guarantee. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for me, the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a just person, a good person. Though for a good person, perhaps someone might even dare to die. But God proves, guarantees his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Let us pray. Father, may each person in this room this morning who is trusting in the gospel for their redemption, to be their refuge, may we invest our hope in the sure thing. Not in success or in partner, in kids or good vibes or self-actualization, but in the gospel. For those of us who are worn down by trouble, I pray that we would find the one place of refuge that is sure and certain and safe. The one impregnable fortress on the face of the earth. Please help us, Lord, to run to you. Over the course of our lives, even just a little bit at a time, please help us to change our ways. That our first response to trouble and trauma, tribulation, to grief and disappointment and pain, that our first response would be to run to our refuge. 
to take up residence in our fortress. That in everything, with prayer and petition, thanksgiving, we would find rest in you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.